All right, welcome back to 1,000 Question Christian. This is our 10th episode. Um, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. I have asked the community of listeners, um, people on Facebook, Instagram, uh, what are your questions that you would want to ask a pastor? So we're kind of throwing away the categories, but our questions still kind of result around um, a stump the pastor kind of questions. We have some weird Bible questions. We have some pastoral advice questions. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to introduce our guest, and we're going to try to get to as many questions as we can. And questions that we don't get to in this round, they may show up in the second season of Thousand Question Christian. But today I'm joined by... Steve Summers. And then your job. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do, Steve? Well, Hunter, I'm the uh, Director of Connectional Ministries. Perfect. Jonathan Porch. I'm an associate pastor currently at Bewley United Methodist Church, taking on a new appointment at Aldersgate UMC in Alexandria this summer. I'm Crystal Siegel. I am the director of hospitality ministries at Union Presbyterian Seminary, but getting ready to transition into the associate director's position at the Office of Clergy Excellence here at the Virginia Conference. Oh, thank you. We're excited to have you here. Thank you. Um, so this is a first for us on Thousand Question. We have three clergy in the room instead of two. So more heads are better, is what I'm saying. Or three's so. a crowd, depending on which exactly. way you want to look at it. We'll see. So we're going to start with our first question. And um, it, I'm not going to tell where it comes from because I told everyone this would be anonymous questions. Um, so the first one is, where do you think the church has gone wrong in the last 50 years? Who wants to take that one? <laughs> It's a good question. I think, you know, f- so much has changed in the last 50 years in our world. And I think the church grew in those 50 years alongside of America's growth. And I think that was actually to a detriment because we saw as America became suburbanized, uh, more wealth increased, there was also a lot of gentrification. There was increases in uh I guess, divisions along racial lines. And as the church grew, we said, oh, God bless this growth. And then I think looking back, we can say, well, maybe we missed God's calling. Maybe we missed the mark uh, because we just grew as population grew and grew in what kind of the American ideal is. And so I think we sort of missed the mark in the fact that we didn't realize uh, maybe that God was calling us to, to kind of dig in. And obviously there's churches and pastors who have done kind of that justice work and, and reconciliation along the way. But I think many of our churches just kind of grew as alongside America instead of saying, uh, how can we be how can we set apart? How can we be a little bit um, countercultural? Um, I think one thing that kind of stands to mind is, you know, a lot of times We've, we've married our, our politics and our religion together, and I think that can often be a detriment. Um, but also we've professionalized the kind of the clergy position. Like all, you know, pretty much all clergy in our conference now, or most of, most of which have seven years of higher education, uh, which can really set us apart in unhealthy ways from, uh, from people because we, we're speaking a language that many of our people can't connect with. So I think that's, that's another way, too, of the professionalization of Christian as minister has in some ways gotten us further away from, um, you know, the priesthood of all believers. Interesting. Well, Hunter, I'd like to look at this um, a little differently. 
I imagine zooming out about 30,000 feet and looking closer, not at the institution of church, but rather church in its original heart and mind of God, which is the body of Christ, the people of God. And in that context, I would argue that the question itself is flawed, that the church hasn't gone wrong. Perhaps the institution has taken some wrong turns, and I don't mean one particular denomination, I mean the institution of church, but church with a capital C as in the universal church or the people of God are still called, baptized into one faith, and are about the mission of God. And um, while there will always be sin and failure, there is this greater notion of grace and faith that will always turn in the right direction. Interesting. So I think maybe I kind of landed somewhere in the middle (laughs) Uh, between John and Steve in the sense of that I felt, well, what's the definition of wrong? Mm -hmm. Um, And that people, uh, sometimes I find it really startling and invigorating that people would choose this path now. Um, When I think there's a lot of I don't know, pressure and encouragement to let go of institutionalized church or religion. Um, People still have a hunger and a quest uh, to know God. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think in that sense, people are still questing. Um, And I think as long as we take up the quest, then at least we're taking up the quest. Mm -hmm. Um, To John or Jonathan? Either way. Jonathan's point, this idea about... um, maybe losing sight of discipleship. Sometimes church has kind of become a, a club that we belong to or just a place we go because people that look like us, sound like us, go there, and there's some comfort in that familiarity um, and a sense of community. But in terms of what really sets us apart, sometimes I think we, we're afraid to lean into those spiritual disciplines or practices. We're afraid to turn off the outside and kind of go inside and go deep. Um, in the context of our Christian faith. And that's what sets us apart. Um, That's what inspires our calling in the first place. So I was trying to think about sort of how to hold these two things in tension. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that we are in the world and yet also set apart. Um, And in terms of our journey over the past 50 years, well, whether or not we're able to speak to our current context or let our current context speak to us, that's an ongoing conversation. And we sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. Um, so that's a long rambling, yeah, I maybe feel like nonsensical this is one of those question. questions that could go for, <laughs> could a, really go long for a long time. But so, like, one of the things that I think about when I hear this question, and I was telling someone earlier um, when I was talking about this topic with them, is I feel like, I don't know if it's like not the church with the capital C, it's definitely an institutional thing. And I think it's also just the flaw of humanity of not being willing to adapt to the future of what the church oh, could sure. be. Because, yeah. like, as a young person, I've felt this many a times where I walk into a church and there's already these cliques that have been formed. Mm. Yeah. And there's the unwelcoming unwelcomeness of, like, I don't know these people and they're not letting me in to get to know them. And I think that's a lot of humanity's issues of, like, I'm just used to being comfortable here in my my little thing. I think COVID is really, at least for me, has showed me how some churches are really struggling to adapt to the changing of yeah. times. And I think that leads to the downfall of 
you know, you see statistically less people are going to church. Whereas I feel like, you know, if you open it up and I don't, I don't think you have to like change your views and be more like accepting politically for say, but like just adapting to the younger generation is, is one that I kind of relate to a lot because I've seen it where I've come to a church that's got an older crowd there sure. and it just doesn't feel like it's something that I'm, that I can be a part of. Whereas if they were able to adapt and say, Hey, like maybe let's sing some songs that aren't from the 1800s and maybe do some, a little bit more contemporary stuff versus the traditional. And I understand you have traditional services and stuff, but I always think of like, what if we just did something a little different? Um, Cause I feel like, you know, church started in such a long time ago that if we, we stay the course of what we're at and now I think it could really struggle. Is there something that you guys can think of that would like help people adapt a little bit? Are there any tools maybe? I mean, I think a lot of it, and this is probably just the space I'm in right now. It's like a lot of it I think is adaptive leadership as, as clergy and as leaders in the church for us to kind of like set the tone and to model that for people. Because if we're ultimately like shooting down all these great ideas or innovation or adaption, uh, then like our church is not going to live in that space either. So I think it, at least for, for me, that's how I kind of internalize it is as clergy leaders, as, as leaders in the church, how do we focus on adaptive leadership? How are we more receptive to what the way the spirit is moving and breathing in our lives and in our community? Um, that's, that's just what really is speaking to me right now. Um, obviously I think there's, there's a lot more to it than that, but for us as leaders to be able to have to be adaptive. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and forbearing, which is a part of our ancient church tradition. The idea that we sit, uh, church is one of the last places you can go where people who vote differently than you, you know, you're sitting right next mm-hmm. to somebody who votes differently yeah. than you, ideologically might be different from you. And the body of Christ can hold within its span <laughs> all the different kinds. So for us to be able to make space at the table of leadership for all different kinds, um, I think would be really, I think that's a really important thing to create healthy congregations, but also to invite younger voices, new voices. And that requires a kind of patience um, and forbearance that I don't think we always practice. Um, But the church kind of demands that of us in our communal life together. I think that's very true, Crystal. And the church also demands um, a degree of definition, mm-hmm. uh, doctrine, and um, an understanding of where we plant a stake in the ground. Mm-hmm. And adaptive leadership calls for our models to adapt around culture or to be relevant, but at the same time, to hold the tension of what keeps the church the church, yeah. you know, as the notes of the church, for example. Um, I know I, I preach for the a point of cabinet, the extended cabinet, a couple days ago, yesterday, in fact, seems like forever ago, and, and um, used the model of the theory you by Otto Schammer as an adaptive leadership model, which basically just says adaptive leadership's like a you. We're constantly going down and letting go and presencing and coming back up to you with new models and understandings of what ministry looks like, constantly throwing out things and adapting new things, and it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, it challenges us. But the bottom line is the, 
the nature of the church is unchanging because it's planted in the gospel, the mm-hmm. charisma, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Cool. I know that was kind of a, that's a tough question to start. So the next one I hope is a little easier. It is, can I still get into heaven if I don't go to church? Well, the simple answer is yes. You know, going to church is not required. If we understand, I know, well, there's another theological uh, um, complex idea, heaven. If heaven is the idea of reward for salvation, it's the outcome of salvation, um, the only thing that's required for salvation is belief in Jesus. Um, so then, no, church is not required for that. I was thinking about this earlier today, and I was thinking about the story of the the two thieves on either side of Jesus. And in that moment, um, Jesus says to this man, you will be with me today in paradise. Um, we don't know his backstory. We don't know how he's come to be where he is. And in one moment, um, the door is open for him. So um, that was one thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this question. Yeah, I think it's, it's really funny to think about in light of COVID for me because mm-hmm. it depends on what you mean by church. Right, because for many people, like for many <laughs> people, great. the church yeah, is the building. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we right. all know it to be the body of Christ and uh, and how we're unified in the gospel. But what's interesting is there's a lot of people who have not been to church in over a year, right? Not physically been to church, mm-hmm. and so how do we define that now? Especially as there's online church, Zoom church, and so what what quote unquote counts as church? You know, Um, and so I think that kind of question is a good question. But now in this sort of COVID world and moving into post-COVID world, I think that question looks totally different because what it means to be part of a church is looking more different every day. Um, So I, you know, good on Chris's answer. Short answer is yes, but I think it part of it's how you define church. That's great. I didn't even think about that when, when this person asked me the question. I, they definitely meant the actual physical building, but that is a really good point of, you know, it, am I still going to church if I'm in my PJs at 9.30, right. turning on just the sermon? I'm a little guilty of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, fa- I found that I can, t- I can time my my alarms in the morning just enough so I can catch the scripture reading and the sermon. You heard it here. Yep. <laughs> Please don't uh, get mad at me, church people. <laughs> well, you know, back before I took uh, on this role as a superintendent, I could go to church 12 times on a Sunday morning. I mean, that's the coolest thing, right? Cruising from church to church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that redefines it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, in so many cool ways. You can still cruise. Yeah. The sure. only difference is you just do it through websites now. Exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. what I, I yeah. found. I got to. I can, yeah. through COVID. I've actually been able to explore other churches and yeah. watch every, different services. And I can do it one church on Sunday, one church on Monday, one church yeah. on Tuesday. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I will say COVID's. That's one of the plus sides, at least in my opinion. But we'll go on to the next one, um, and it is: What is some pastoral advice you would give to a youth slash minor who is struggling with a porn addiction? And that's kind of a dark topic, but. I think it's a good question. Well, I brought the Bible. Okay. Because sometimes the hardest questions, we can find the answer in God's word. And uh, while not a technical answer, um, I think it speaks for itself. And I'm reading from Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and it's in chapter 4, verse 8. From now on, brothers and sisters... 
you, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise, practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, and saw in us, the God of peace be with you. I would just share, is it pure and holy? Does it offer peace? Let the Holy Spirit work in that place of holiness. Interesting. Now, so I think, you know, I think that's a really good answer. But there's also a small part of me that is thinking of the science behind addiction. Mm. Like, um, you know, when I was in college, my parents got really involved with helping with Celebrate Recovery. Mm. And through that, they had met addicts. And, like, I, I, in high school, had no understanding of what addiction really is. So, like, through that, I have I did the research of seeing, like, what addiction is with the brain and how, like, certain things release chemicals, and then you get addicted to the chemicals being released, and that's kind of what the cause and effect of an addiction what would be, I mean, I know there's the scripture side of it and, and the spiritual side of something like a porn addiction or even a drug addiction, or e- it could even just be cigarettes. What is like, if you were going to give advice to someone who came and said, you know, I want to, like, I know this is bad. I know that the gospel or, or the Bible says that this is an unho- unholy thing. It's painful to relationships. It's painful to, um, myself it's painful to my spiritual self what are some tips that you guys could give to a congregation member who may be struggling with it in a real way of the science of it and is that something that you would point someone to another doctor or is that someone that you would just pray with what what's what's some tips that you guys would give to something on a real level um, that they can maybe tangibly do i I think the first thing i'd want to do is just um affirm they're wanting to talk about it and acknowledge it and bring it out into the light. Um, so much of what binds us, um, if we keep it hidden, Scripture says what is bound in or on earth is bound in heaven. What you let loose on earth, you let loose in heaven. So I would want to affirm that young person's willingness to kind of take a look at themselves and to ask for help um, and to affirm what courage it takes uh, to bring something like that out. I think I, I I actually, in case somebody was listening to the podcast today and it was important to them, I, I actually looked up the the, Nash, the, um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services hotline, and I just wanted to say it out loud. It's 1-800-662-4357. Um, which isn't necessarily the first place I would start. Mm-hmm. But I would say that if someone didn't feel comfortable coming and talking to their pastor or to a parent, that was an option for them because that place does have all kinds of um, resources for treatment. You know, as Wesley people, we have the quadrilateral, which holds scripture, reason, uh, tradition, and experience all together in tension. We let these things inform each other. So I would want to talk about the science of addiction, but I would also want to talk about how treatment was a gift from God um, and that that was a, a path to wholeness and to healing. Um, I would want to explore with them if they felt like they could bring their family into the conversation. 
because addicts don't get very far without support. Um, so those are some things that came to mind when I was reflecting on the question. But I'm sure, Jonathan, do you have anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate this question because I think so often sex and, and porn are really taboo topics in the church. Mm-hmm. And the more we talk about them, the less taboo, and then the more likely people are actually to open up about uh, their struggles. And, you know, especially if, it, if this person, as we've kind of identified, is like a youth or minor, like we know that, that people kind of uh, understand their sexuality first when they're, when they're teens, when they're young adults. And it's often very messy and complicated. And so just to affirm that it's a messy, difficult space to understand and to navigate. Um, and so just kind of like, as, as my colleagues have said here, kind of affirming uh, their willingness to, to speak about it, affirming uh, kind of this, this honesty and vulnerability. And I also think um, as far as addiction goes, like I, I really do think I, those are resources that I don't have to offer somebody. I, that's where I appoint a therapist because often with addiction, I mean, there's, there's, it's very complicated, but there's often something driving that, um, that addiction. So I, I would point them towards therapy resources while possibly coming alongside them to do some pastoral care, checking in, um, praying with them. But it's, it's just such a messy topic that needs to be talked about, not just uh, sex and porn, but also addiction, too. It's, it's very, you know, it's present in society, present in our churches. Yeah, so Crystal, I think you, um, you brought up a really good point about, like, having the support system behind you. So let's say we have a youth who is kind of afraid of what their parents are going to say if yeah. they get in trouble. Right, is that sure, something sure. that you would... Now, I know, I know the question of it, but I want to hear from you. Is that something that you would go to their parents, or is that something where you would encourage them to do it instead of... I think the first thing I would do is try to work with them and encourage them to talk with their parents. Um, I, I think it would also depend on the child's age. Mm-hmm. At some point, we get into a, um, what does it mean to um, do no harm? What does it mean if someone is a harm to themselves and in terms of addiction? So I'd probably start forming my own team on my end of people to help me know the best path forward, mm-hmm. the best practices, mm-hmm. um, because... Uh, like John, I mean, I'm a clergy person. I got some, I got some of this, but not the width and breadth of yeah. it. I think in terms of youth being able to trust us as clergy people, as people in their world who is someone they can turn to, I would have it. I would put confidentiality first. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I say, I would also need to take their age into account, and I would need to take um, the idea of whether or not they would be a harm to themselves in this situation into account as well. So it's a a complicated yeah. issue as to whether or not I would bring the parents in. Yeah, I just know a lot of like kids in like, I know it starts really young a lot of times with, the, with the porn and, and sex addiction and stuff. But I like when I read this question, the person that comes, the stereotype that comes to my head is like a teenager. Yes. And I know that a lot of teenagers sometimes are like, I don't want to tell my parents. And like, right. they think of pastors as a place that they can go and right. have exactly. a safe space. And have, and have a safe space. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to add, Steve? I'm good. All right. So <laughs> before we go to the next question, I do. Will you read that number one I, more yes, time just so we have it? Yes. Um, and again, this is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline number. It's 1-800-662-4357. And thank you for bringing that number. Yeah, now, the next question is one I know you're all super excited about. <laughs> it is the, who are the Nephilim in the Bible? Oh, and gosh. before I have... Um, <laughs> she's she's holding up her research. So before we get into that, I will read just really quickly Genesis six four. I think is where they 
first show up. I Googled that, so if it's wrong, I apologize. But I'll just read it really quickly. <laughs> Google is an amazing thing, guys. Um, so it is Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Ooh, my Bible says, is it Nephilites? Um, in those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, and they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. So, <laughs> I'll just keep to the question, who are the Nephilim in the Bible? Giants? You know, in, in my brief research today, I also saw that some people consider them fallen angels. So that's uh, that's also another possibility of fallen angels. I, I think the scripture said that they're, they were considered sons of God that mm-hmm. like mated with humans. So uh, I guess that, that would explain kind of that, that idea that they are somehow fallen angels. I like to... Or like spir- spiritual creatures of some sort, yeah. Yeah, and I like to the read like the way I interpret it, and it's totally wrong, but I think it's hilarious is the um, become heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. I like to think of, like, the movie 300. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Terminator, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> like, just famous action heroes from the 80s. I know it's not right, but I think it's kind of like Conan. Yeah. Cap- Captain America. Captain America, <laughs> yes. But no. With the shield. Yeah. Well, and in numbers, right, they reappear, and it says that to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. Um, that's the story of Joshua and, uh, oh, <laughs> right? Case yes, in the promised yes, land, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. they see all the bounty, but they also see these really large people, and they feel like, in, in comparison, they are quite small and fragile. Um, so I know a lot of it's up to interpretation, but when they, see, when they use the word giant, are you imagining, like, Jack and the Beanstalk <laughs> giant, or is this like, is this someone who has been pumping iron? I'm just iron picturing the rock. I'm just yeah, picturing the go. rock, and yeah. that's it. So you know, Gosh, my my <laughs> mind always jumps like back to, uh, you know, like in the ancient times, like how different human bodies were, and how like yeah, most people were were very small and tiny because they didn't have right. all the nutrients and medicines and all that. So I'm just imagining that there was like one group of people who were like six foot, six foot six, and all the Israelites were like five foot, maybe maybe a tall one at five five. Right. And they're like, oh my gosh, these are huge. giants. Like these are huge, huge people. Right, right. Yeah. Sounds Interesting. So if, if like, let's say I was going to come to you guys and say, hey, what are Nephilim? What are the angels? Or like, there's all kinds of creatures or, you know, the Cherubim, all right. that kind of stuff. Seraphim. Seraphim. <laughs> Seraphim, yes. Yeah. The, the four wheels of the apocalypse and all that kind of stuff. What <laughs> what kind of tools can people do if they want to do this research kind of for themselves? Is Google a good one? Is it? I know, I know Google's hard <laughs> because you get all kinds of different, but where can someone go? Do you guys have any ideas? I mean, if you don't, that's fine. I know it's kind of on the spot. This is not one necessarily for accuracy, but one I find really interesting is how movies uh, project some of those characters. And I took a, in college, I took a course on Jesus and the Bible, mm-hmm. and it's interesting how see how Jesus was like presented, but also everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the the there was like a Noah's Ark movie that came out a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and it, it depicted the Nephilim as like these rock creatures, if I remember correct. So I I just think it, it opens up the imagination. 
a little bit. Like often how we kind of picture angels as like white robed, beautiful creatures uh, is not often actually how angels are depicted, like actually with multiple eyes and weird shaped bodies. So, uh, you know, sometimes movies do that. Sometimes movies don't. I was I always wish like there's times where I read the Bible and I'm just like man I wish like J.R.R. Tolkien would have wrote like a version <laughs> a lot of imagery, um, but that's the fun part about the Bible. <laughs> cool. So we'll move on to the next one. Uh, we're making great time, guys. If we were all descendants of Adam and Eve, does that make us all related? If so, does that mean I married my cousin? It's kind of a funny one, but. If you really think about it. Degrees of separation. What do you mean? Elaborate. Well, it depends on whether it's a theological question or a scientific question. Or where did they mix? So there's a lot of trajectories on that. Yeah. And um, picking up on that, I was thinking about how... Um, you know, the creation narrative, um, I think maybe less is, less is a scientific story, but as a story that is meant to show us and communicate to us what people in the ancient world valued and what they learned about from God by looking to the natural order. The quest for balance, um, that people are given to each other in relationship, um, that creation is diverse, um, and that when people are in conflict with one another, there are deep consequences for that, long-lasting generational consequences. So I would look to the creation narrative as more of an emotional genealogy <laughs> or a, uh, even a sociological and, to a degree, a biological um, explaining about our world. But in terms of like that exact scientific explanation, um, I would say no. We, we are not married to our cousins. And I want to go back to that quadrilateral um, because in our tradition as Methodists, it allows us to hold science and faith together in tension. And it allows these two disciplines to inform each other and shape each other. Um, science lets us know about God. It lets us know about God's creation. So I don't, uh, so I would just look to science as another um, language of faith, basically, so for what that's worth. Yeah. Uh, for me, what I often think about this question, and, and whenever we kind of like talk about sort of origin questions, uh, particularly about Adam and Eve, I often think about how really Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two separate creation stories mm, yeah. told from different perspectives. And so in Genesis 1, we hear that God created uh, male and female, man and woman, uh, and said, you know, be fruitful and multiply. God didn't say, I created one man and one woman in Genesis 1, like just man and woman as, as categories. So uh, I, I guess in a lot of historical understandings of that, it's that God created people in, in the creation, not just uh, two persons. And so uh, that's, that's kind of where I, I draw from and, and, and think of Genesis 2, kind of the story of Adam and Eve is more of kind of this narrative of narrative presentation of origins and what human life was like, understanding sin, understanding who God is uh, from a more human perspective. Uh, but Genesis 1 of, of kind of like, oh, God created everything, plants and animals and birds and people, plural, you know. 
interesting. And you can work it backwards too. I mean, instead of going backwards in time, you could look at modern science from a purely ontological point of view and argue that we know these things of fractal geometry and the way the universe is constructed, that uh, there's an interconnectivity that's present everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. from a micro to a macro level. And because of that, how far of a stretch is it to say that, yeah, we are connected, you know, <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, but does that mean we're cousins? No. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's a it's, then it becomes a language issue. Right, right. Um, so Semantics language, to a degree. Semantics, right? right? right. The, um, yeah. Language meets the barrier of reality. That's what happens. Steve, it'd be an honor to be your cousin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we're our best compliment. Oh, Jonathan, I guess we know where we stand. Yeah, right. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Yeah. <laughs> we work in the same building. Your time's coming. Oh, okay, all right, okay. All right, all right, yeah. okay. Welcome to the family. Thank the thousand you. question Christian there family. There you go. All right, so we'll go on to the we're next one. We're going to adopt you, Jonathan. Okay, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Why are so many stories in the gospel repeated in the Bible instead of and why do, I, I totally think I messed this, this question up. So we'll say, why are so many stories in the gospel repeated in the Bible? And why do the details not always line up? Yeah, I think this kind of goes back, at least for me, to the kind of Genesis story of, of, of perspectives. Uh, that we have kind of four distinct, unique perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry uh, and Jesus had 12 disciples, so we could imagine that they had 12 perspectives. And uh, what's interesting is we even hear in the stories how Jesus would pull away certain disciples. Uh, we hear about that transfiguration. We hear about that Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus pulled away certain disciples. So I imagine, like, um, like certain disciples were like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> like, what's, what? hey, Peter or John, you, you guys have pulled away? What's, like, going on? So, like, in all of it is we also have to think about, like, this oral tradition, too, of the, the scriptures being shared in narrative and in story and how, you know, if you see see something happen, you tell a story and people's details and memory is going to be uh, be different, not necessarily wrong, but different. And there's also the audience that they're writing for. So there are different things that they want to highlight. And if I was telling the same story to Steve one time and I told it to Jonathan again, I might choose to highlight different things about the story because I know who they are and I know what they value and what they might be curious about. Or if um, there was an issue I felt that they might be edified in learning about or addressing, then I would bring out that characteristic of the story. So there's that, too. There's what they, who they are writing to is a piece of it as well. I think, I think a lot of times, even I forget it sometimes, is that the Bible is written in different books, and each book kind of has its own author, correct? Yes. And it I think a lot of times, I saw this really cool thing, and I begged my wife to let me buy it. So, <laughs> Hannah, if you're listening, <laughs> please let me purchase okay. this. <laughs> but so, so basically, with the, what <laughs> I just, you know, you see the one book, and you just assume that's all the same author, and right. I think a lot of people forget that. But so the thing that I was trying to buy was someone has taken – the Bible and made basically one book out of each book, but they did it in like a stylistic, it almost looks kind of like a magazine. Uh, um, oh, very cool. Very artsy fartsy yeah. right up my alley. <laughs> nice. I was thinking this would be great for my office cause it's very pretty, um, <laughs> but it's so cool. Cause like they have Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in its own 
book instead of it all being in one book. And I think that, at least for me, it like that is kind of a reminder of like, oh, these all have different authors and they all have different perspectives. And so that's just for me. That's my little two cents. So is it in your office? Did no, you? not yet. Right. <laughs> well, we have to put in a good word. Yeah. Yeah. The key <laughs> word is yet. yet. So Hannah, if you're listening, please let me purchase these. <laughs> they're, they're very pretty, I will say. Um, but I don't remember who does them or and now that I'm thinking about it, I don't even know how I could get to it on Google. I think if you just Google like yeah. Bible magazine yeah. style or something. <laughs> um, well, cool. So we'll move on to the next one. Um, we're making great time. We might actually get through all these. Uh, what advice would you give to someone new to the community? Tips to finding a church after moving. I think this one's, I think I relate to this question a lot because I've moved once or twice in the past few years and trying to find a new church isn't easy. Yeah, it's hard work. Um, gosh, I, I think now I, I would answer this differently because of, because of COVID and because everything's online. Right. So I think like if I were coming to a new place, I would look at, you know, I'd do the, my Google search. I'd look at Google maps. I'd pull up what are the closest United you know, Methodist churches to me, but I'd also then look at like their Facebook page and look at, uh, their, their services, and you kind of get a quick glimpse of like, okay, what kind of worship do they have? What kind of groups do they have? Small groups, discipleship. How do I see myself fitting into that? And uh, now you have the luxury of experiencing a Sunday, but with ever having, like, having to step foot in to not to like figure out uh, what's it going to be like. So it's, it kind of like opens, uh, lowers the barrier of entry for people. So I think that's that's great, but. Uh, yeah, and then and then going, right? Going and experiencing, getting plugged in. I think you're more likely to grow if you're going to find a ministry, something you're really passionate about, and a group that you're really passionate about. So whether that's some sort of mission or small group, uh, that's kind of what I would do. So when you're looking for a church, is it something where you should be trying to find something that you feel comfortable in? or Because, I mean, I know for me, I want to go to a church where I feel like I'm accepted and comfortable in, but I know it's not about me. Like, if you found a church where it's like, you know, they don't have a, like, for me, I'm a big video guy. Like, if I, if I go to, if I find a church close to me that might not have a video guy, but I could be their video guy, is it better for me to go to a church where I can put my fruits there, or is it better to go somewhere where it serves my needs I think as a third question, and that's the um, the feeling one gets, the discernment one gets about the inertia or the focus of the church to which they feel called to serve. And let me explain that. Um, if the church is appealing to people on a consumeristic level, and you can discern that, um, may not be the church you want to go to, or you may wonder what that's about. If the church is uh, just wants you because you're the video guy, mm-hmm. you know that says another narrative, right? <laughs> but if you go to the church, says, "Hey, these folks love people. They want to get out and make a difference. Um, they want to be the gospel in the community." That may say something entirely different. And then how you fit your gifts and talents into that larger picture would be a natural fit, or not. You may grow in a different way, and that'd be really healthy. Um, but it's not about you, and it's not about them. It's about the gospel reaching out in the community. Interesting. Good stuff. I know 
the fee, my always fear about moving now that I live in Richmond, I probably will never move again because I live it. But like, is the idea of like, oh, I was like, now I have to find another church. I had it when like you leave your home church for the first mm. time when you're going to school and you get out of school. If you move somewhere that's not close to home, your original home, having to find a church there. And I feel like for someone who has bounced around churches many times, I feel like it's for me, I can imagine how hard it is to find like the place where you feel like you're welcomed and that yeah. this is a church that you can call home. Well, and I, I found in my experience that a lot of people are looking for the church that was that like there's, we, we can all probably name a church that really formed us, that, that we loved, that we just felt super connected to, whether it was the worship or whatever. And so many people are trying to like copy paste that church. But the truth is that's a unique community. And so I think saying, how can I explore and find what I loved about that community, but knowing it's going to be different? And I think it, that's, that's where we allow the Spirit to move, to guide us to the, that place of, like, is this church really loving people? And are they going to love me, and am I going to be fulfilled in that? But it's really hard because we, we so love, like, what was. Mm-hmm. Even if we've had to let go, and that's been many, many years, uh, it's, it's allowing the spirit to move kind of in that space. Yeah. I, that totally makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of like putting words to thought, a thought that I've had for the past like six or seven years. Cause I tell people all the time, I was like, man, I have this one church that ruined church for me because <laughs> now I want to go to that church, but I can't. So I, that that's perfect. That's like the great way to say it. Cause I've never been able to put it in those words of copy and paste. Mm. Um, but I think it's great. Good tips. Um, I just want to say a word on the other side of that, which is just that churches sometimes fall into the trick or the habit or, I don't know, the narrative. We are welcoming without really having examined the journey of a guest from the moment they park to when they come into the sanctuary or come to the kitchen, whatever it is and um, experience worship or whatever that is. And, and, and now, of course, we're also having to think about the online journey, not just the physical. And churches, um, because it's hard to, it really is hard to be self-reflective about that experience for a guest. And so I guess I'm just sending an exhortation <laughs> out there <laughs> uh, to our tradition to say, to have the courage to be reflective about what welcoming means to you and to put all the intention you can behind that because people come in the door and they're looking for visual signs. If there's space for them, if their interests are represented, um, the sermon they hear, can they connect with that? But there's all the other kind of finer details too. Um, and so anyway, I just guess I wanted to just put a plug in about that because I've served churches that really tried to, um, get traction around that. And then I served churches who just kept saying, we're welcoming. I don't understand what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And it's like, well, I, I, this is why we're having this conversation yeah, because people don't understand what uh, you don't understand what, what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And people are turning around and they're leaving because you all either have your backs, you know, you don't make an open circle when you're talking so people can come in, um, uh, all different kinds of things. I don't need to, well, sorry. No, I'm I totally launching. Get that. Sorry. I, I know people and I am guilty of it myself of, I have the rule of like if I go to this church and no one says hey to me, yep. I might not even stay for the sermon. Yep. I might just yeah. leave because uh, yeah. if I'm not welcomed here, <laughs> right. 
Like, if I'm just going to be a stranger hanging out in the back, I don't want to be here. What's the point of that? Exactly. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think it's a great way to put that. And um, I think if you're trying to find a new church, you could also reach out to people on Facebook. Like, I know the power of Facebook is, like, mm-hmm. if I'm messaging someone, there's a good chance you're pro- you might get the pastor <laughs> just saying, hey, yeah. I'm new to the community. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm looking for a church. Could you hook me up? Yeah. I mean, there, there's no harm in it. Nope. Yeah, that's true. Probably um, it will end up at the pastor if it doesn't, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the next one is going to be our last question, and uh, this one might Aww. be a doozy as well. Um, why is it that religion has been the cause for so much conflict when God tells us to love our neighbor? And it's really it's it's a tough one. Gosh, I think, oh, yeah, no, Chris, no, no, you go no, ahead. No, Justin, go ahead. you go. No, no, you go. I, I think as, as if, just reflect on this question, I think it comes often back to, like, our self-interest. That in, the, in this, we've kind of, like, hit on some of these themes in, in other questions, but, like, how is, how is my religion serving me? And so if my religion serves me by being bigoted towards certain groups of people, then I can use my religion to justify that, right? Like I could, I could look in the Bible and find certain passages that say, "Yep, slavery is a good thing," or could find all, you can find all sorts of things to justify it in the Bible, without really having put critical thought behind it, because it serves our self-interest. It, it justifies, you know, our actions or what we've done, and um, kind of diverts diverts the blame without this sort of like introspection and reflection on okay, how am I being changed and transformed by the grace of God? And oftentimes we say, no, the grace of God has shown me through Scripture that these people are are different, and that's what the Bible says. And so it's allowing for us to say, how is God shaping me, opening me to love others? Full stop. I know, like... uh you, you kind of have said it where there's, there are people who see that the Bible, basically, they use the Bible as a way of saying, like, that their way of thinking is correct. What is an attempt, or if, even if you should attempt, to say, like, you know, maybe the Bible doesn't say this? Does that make sense? Like, if like, just for an example, we have the, the Old Testament says don't get tattoos. And I go to a church, and I've, I, mean, I don't have any tattoos because I don't like needles, but... Like you've got a full sleeve or something, and someone comes up, comes up to you and says, "You can't be here because you have tattoos." Like, how do you approach that conversation in a healthy way? Because um, I mean, this kind of goes back to the other stuff. Of like, it might this conflict might not be something that is yelling at each other, but it is still a conflict of one person thinks that tattoos are okay, one person thinks that tattoos are not okay. What is the what's the healthy way of having that communication to maybe bridge the divide between the people who think that they're right and the other side who think that they're right. I mean, they're going to clash in the middle. So what, what is your opinion of the healthiest way to kind of have open conversation and allow two people to coexist with differing beliefs? So that would be for me, the corruption of religion rightly understood. And what I mean by that is you could use any, um, organization or any group or any faith tradition in a corrupted way to do injury instead of to do good 
Christianity in its purest form is incarnational. What I mean by that, it incorporates the mystery of Christ and the presence of Christ in all that is and sees the Christ in others. And in that context, it can't be corrupted because Christ is uncorruptible and sinless. So when we look at um, not religion but faith through the lens that's not adulterated in that kind of way of um, seeing people as others or seeing them as tattooed or not, yeah. then we're going to be a people of grace and of love, and the incarnation shines in that moment. So when you first gave this scenario, in my mind, I like launched. I was like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't have this, because I was so angry that someone might, the scenario you mm-hmm. put out made me so upset. And I was like, oh, I hope Jonathan or Steve going to answer this question because I'm about to lose my mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, my word. So thank goodness for Steve <laughs> and his gentle articulation of what I was feeling. But I think to maybe back up, I might be curious and turn to the person who felt the need to say such thing and say, well, hey, what's going on for you right now? What is it that is so unnerving for you? You had to go up and tell a sister or a brother, you're not welcome here. And I might want (laughs) to spend some time unpacking that. Um, But I think to Steve's point about how, and I had mentioned this earlier about forbearance and about how in the body of Christ we have a, a far greater width and breadth and we don't always know, we aren't practiced at living with each other um, in real ways um, that kind of expose our differences. Um, but, the, but the Christian tradition, the faith, gives us opportunity to actually practice that and to hang together and to listen to one another and to learn from one another. Um, to this point about... Actually, let me take a second. You want to say something, Jonathan? No, go ahead. You can keep going. Okay, so... <laughs> I, I could vamp if you want me to, but no. <laughs> Hello, my honey. Yeah, right. Hello, my sweetheart. <laughs> um, but you, this question about, you know, what is the question? Why, why are we so conflicted? Uh, why is it that religion has been the cause for so much conflict when God tells us to love our neighbors? Well, that's the quest for power, right? And yeah. we want to align ourselves with the most powerful entity we know and we want to act like that entity is on our side and even 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 amongst each other we want to say we know what god thinks or what god believes or what god cherishes and granted we have indications (laughs) we have indicators but we are more than happy enough to fight over those indicators Mm. and it's because of our deeply flawed nature um and I guess I just kind of come back around to the fact that we need each other uh, in the journey of discipleship. Um, to yeah, we need each other. So because yeah, I mean, you can take the tattoo scenario and you can just take tattoo out, insert anything. Oh, and of course, of right, course. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. I got upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Well, you guys have survived the questions from oh my um, our viewers or listeners, I guess, because this isn't a video. This is, <laughs> I'm a video guy. Um, so one thing I like to do at the end of every episode is let everyone kind of give uh, a plug for what they have going on, whether that be a ministry you have at your church, uh, something that you're excited about coming up. Um, anything, Steve, you want to start? 
Yeah, so thanks so much. Um, in Virginia, in our conference, um, we, uh, we see the children of God as being lifelong learners who influence others to serve. So in Office of Connectional Ministries and through um, all that we do, we see it through a lens of learning and through uh, serving and through influencing, which is what we're doing right now together, talking about God and, and Jesus and hope and church and all the wonderful things that hold us together, make the world a better place. Amen. Yeah, uh, for, for me, just want to highlight something awesome happening at Beulah United Methodist Church, something we've been praying about, dreaming about, and really throughout the season of dreaming in the midst of the pandemic came to fruition is we're building a community garden at the end of May. And uh, we're just so excited about it. It's going to tie in with our soccer ministry. We're hoping it will tie in with our meals ministry. Awesome. We're hoping to build, Gosh. like, small business out of that for some of the uh, Hispanic community uh, around uh, our neighborhood. We have, like, grand visions and plans for it, um, but it all kind of happens and starts through the community garden. So we're really excited about that. Um, it's being built. Uh, we've got the wood ordered, and we've got the county involved, VSU's involved. So a lot of, like, great stakeholders. So very excited about that. That's like very exciting. So at the seminary, we've been hosting a Just Talk, Talk Just webinar series, um, and it was born out of um, the killing of George Floyd, and reflecting on all kinds of theological, sociological, political issues uh, in our country and in the church. So next Tuesday, we have an episode, um, a year since George Floyd. It's a retrospective of all of our webinars over this past year, but we're also going to be taking a look at the, at the verdict of the trial and thinking a little bit uh, more about sort of where we are now in our nation's um, um, situation and uh, in our position to that trial and the killing of George Floyd and sort of where does the church, how does the church respond and move forward from here in matters of race? So yeah. And where can people find that webinar? They can find it at, um, upsem.edu. Okay. Is it going to be on like, is it on that webpage or is there going to be a link? There will be a link to the page. Yeah. Perfect. Well, awesome guys. Um, this is our 10th episode of thousand question Christians. So we're going to take a, two to three week break uh, as we prepare for annual conference. Um, Time gets a little crazy. So we will be back um, for a season two. The format might look different. I think I'm going to toss the alliteration that comes with each episode out the window uh, because that is daunting. Um, (laughs) But if you are looking for other podcasts (laughs) to listen to until we come back, we have another uh, great podcast kind of network that we have through the Virginia conference. It is VAUMC connection on there. You can find anything from, uh, conference news to what's going on around the conference with Maddie with the audio advocate we have conversations and we've had two really good ones we've had um, black and Korean clergy getting together to talk about their experience with the LA riots we've talked about um, the power struggle with kind of policing in our, in our nation um, and then I think as of today there should be a new one up there about um, the relaunch of coat and how churches can start to help relaunch um, after COVID. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been great us. having you guys and we'll see you guys in season two.